sorry to have to delay your pleasure for another couple of minutes, but it will only be a minute or two. I'm Pamela Pierce, and I'm on the staff of Penn American Center. And I'm going to start um, by asking for your help with something. Most of you have gotten on your seats a flyer that describes Penn's fund for writers and editors with AIDS. And this is the help that we need. We've been very successful in our fundraising for this fund, but we're finding that there are not as many people who know about it as we would like. So we're asking if you know of a writer or editor who has AIDS and they would, could use money, which they probably could, to please give them this flyer. If you know some writers or editors in other parts of the country, outside of San Francisco and New York, where this fund is very well known, we're asking you to, to mail it to a friend out there. Or if you go on vacation in some place far out, put it on a bulletin board. Just help us spread the word. We need your help to help. Thank you very much. And now I turn the evening over to D.H. Mellon. Is it working? Okay, well, Pamela told you who I am, and I'll just say that I welcome you warmly uh, on behalf of Penn. And I, manage, I imagine that many of you have seen the uh, excellent interview in this morning's New York Times uh, interview with Gwendolyn Brooks, and perhaps some of you have heard her on uh, W. LIB, the interview from the, uh, from the stage of the Apollo Theater, and so uh, surely this is the place to be at this moment, and, and I think that we realize that even before all of this uh, pre-publicity. And first, several thanks are in order. First, of course, to Penn for making this event possible to Jane Cortez for having suggested it, and for, to Pamela Pierce for putting it all together quite magically, and also to St. Peter's Church for its most gracious hospitality. Tonight, our attention celebrates a woman who has been giving heart and vision to American poetry for 45 years. Of course, I'm referring to Gwendolyn Brooks. With every work, from a street in Bronzeville and Annie Allen to Maud Martha, Bronzeville Boys and Girls, The Bean Eaters, Selected Poems, In the Mecca, Riot, Family Pictures, Aloneness, Beckonings, To Disembark, The Near Johannesburg Boy, Blacks, Gottschalk and the Grand Tarantel. That's an incomplete list, but I, I, I won't complete it. She has continued to orchestrate a music of humane concerns. In this 
setting of St. Peter's, which has been so supportive of jazz, we feel an appropriateness, one that reminds us of the connections between the black church and music and poetry and oratory and leadership, leadership. Every one of these vital elements is pertinent to the work of Gwendolyn Brooks and epitomized in her extraordinary voice. It is a heroic black voice, one that calls to unity, struggle, pride, to a communal sense that touches us with the ardor of its integrity. Brooks has been blessed with recognition and distinguished with many awards that include significant firsts. She was the first black to win a Pulitzer Prize for Annie Allen in 1950, the first black woman to be appointed consultant in poetry to the Library of Congress just before that title was changed to Poet Laureate, the first black woman to be elected to the National Institute of Arts and Letters 32 years after W.E.B. Du Bois, the first black the first black woman to become an honorary fellow of the Modern Language Association, the first black woman to receive the Poetry Society of America's Frost Medal and its Shelley Memorial Award, and the first recipient of the Kaumba Liberation Award. She has been elected to the National Women's Hall of Fame. Following Carl Sandburg, she was named Poet Laureate of Illinois. And she was just notified that she has become the first American to be honored by the English Literature Department of the University of Thessaloniki in Greece, jointly with the Hellenic American Union. Her honorary doctorates now number about 60, perhaps more, and there are many other prizes. The point here, however, is not merely to list her accomplishments, but to note how she applies them, what she gives back to the community. She does this in tangible ways, by nurturing publications, particularly of young poets, by establishing prizes like her annual Poet Laureate Awards, and the George Kent Award. She does this in spiritual ways, by giving readings, teaching, lecturing, by encouraging and inspiring poets of all cultures, wherever they may be, even those in prisons. And she offers, finally, the example of her life. She has fortified the black press, and now, as an independent, she publishes with her own David Company in Chicago. What a model that is for women, isn't it? For poets who strive to be published. Here, here. <laughs> for poets who strive to be published in this unpoetic climate, sad to say. Few icons remain these days, few whose images have not been tarnished or defaced. From the 70s and 80s until now, we've seen our heroes, pedestals and all, cast into quicklime. But a few have survived to point the way. And one of these luminous survivors is Gwendolyn Brooks. 
I've written of her in two books, Heroism in the New Black Poetry, out this year from the University Press of Kentucky, which includes five other poets, and in Gwendolyn Brooks, Poetry on the Heroic Voice, the biocritical study whose last paragraph will end my remarks. The chapter, by the way, is called A Major Poet. Beyond critical analysis, we decide that we like a work or we don't, we like a poet or not. We care about the poetry of Gwendolyn Brooks in great measure because it cares about us and the existence we share. It does not lose us in a labyrinthine psyche or make us claustrophobic to get out of life or tax our patients with chronic self-pity. A social act, it hones an art of utility and beauty at home in the world. Its human terrain recalls John Dewey's observation that William Carlos Williams found so compelling. The local is the only universal upon that all art builds. At the same time, Brooks's travels, her span of interests and enterprise, give her work a cosmopolitan breadth. She contributes a beauty of wholeness, of a fully articulated human being whose compassionate intelligence, wit, and humor, and anger transcend their tragic awareness. It is especially just that Brooks's familial perspective on the black nation renders her animating quality. As we read her poems, we feel their indivisible affection, their cohering power acknowledging them an essential sanity, black and electric, her words from in the Mecca, we recognize a national resource needed now. It is my honor and joy to present to you Gwendolyn Brooks. I guess you all understand now why I have referred to D.H. Mellum as my extender. <laughs> with that extension and with your welcome as I came in here, I re really feel it would, would be the wise thing to do to leave now. <laughs> but, no. I'm going to read you some poems, new and old, and hope to involve you with love and light and loss and liberty and lunacy and laceration, lots and lots of laceration, because uh, Penn is uh, so to be uh, admired and um, um, understood to be so contributing to the wealth in many senses of that word of so many of us I have prepared 
something that I rarely do offer, a little introduction, a formal little introduction, which I have written out for you. It says, poetry is many things. Poetry is absolutely a smorgasbord. And you're glad you wouldn't want a breakfast plate of five raspberry Danish. No, you might, if you're reckless, want an egg, a strip of bacon, an orange, and one raspberry Danish. Poetry is a leaning post. That's number two. Mightily stirred. Almost anyone will resort to and lean on some aspect of poetry. And I want to interrupt myself here to give you a little anecdote which proves that children often, when sorely tried, rely on poetry. Uh, I was at the Central School in Glencoe, Illinois, not so very long ago, and I was directed to the little girl's uh, bathroom, washroom. And uh, there, on a stall by the wall, by the window wall, I saw an inscription which had been made by some little child who sorely tried, resorted to poetry rather than prose to express her intense uh, resentment. And she said, um, if you sprinkle when you tinkle, please be neat and wipe the seat. You see, she could have written that in prose, but I see that she felt that it wouldn't have borne the, the, the exact in, in intensity of her uh, fury. <laughs> um, number three I have here, rap, reggae, and row, row, row your boat are all types of expression which serve their purposes and can be poetry. And last, prose is survey. Poetry is siren. Now I want to go back to that little alliterative list. Um, love, light, loss, liberty, um, lunacy, and laceration. And I think it would be nice for me to start with love because we all love love. At least we all love the concept of love. And I want to begin with a love poem called When You Have Forgotten Sunday, The Love Story. And this is, um, oh, an expression of the adolescence of my marriage. Well, let me stop right here and share with you the um, adolescence of my marriage. When I was 21 and my husband-to-be was 21, I belonged to the NAACP Youth Council in Chicago. And a mutual friend of ours had told my husband-to-be, you ought to go to one of those meetings because there's a girl there who writes poetry. Now, in those long-ago times, there was not the interest in creativity that there is today. So if you wrote poetry, and you heard that somebody young in the vicinity was writing poetry, you'd make it your business to meet that individual. So one evening I looked up, and there framed in the doorway 
was my husband to be, looking tall and elegant and handsome, he thought and I thought. And I've been in the habit of saying, because I've told this story many, many times, of saying that uh, he was erect. And uh, if you knew my husband, you'd know why I'd want to use that word, because he does have a habit of standing up very straight and tall and looking commandingly at the world. But um, when I told this story to a recent audience and used that word, I saw some peculiar expression in the faces of some of those before me, so it's only mischief that makes me continue to use that word. <laughs> well, I was sitting with uh, a woman known to many of you, Margaret Goss Burroughs. She was Margaret Taylor then, and she, uh, Taylor Goss, because she was married to Bernard Goss at that time, and she's also a painter and was then. And uh, I said to her, Margaret, look, there's the man I'm going to marry. And she said, hey, boy, this girl wants to meet you. That's the way we met. A month and a week later, we were engaged. And a year and a month and a week later, we were wed. What does that say to the young girls out here who think they want a similar result? Start writing poetry. <laughs> And when you have forgotten the bright bedclothes on a Wednesday and a Saturday, and most especially when you have forgotten Sunday, when you have forgotten Sunday halves in bed, or me sitting on the front room radiator in the limping afternoon, looking off down the long street to nowhere, hunt by my plain old wrapper of no expectation and nothing I have to do, and I'm happy, why? And if Monday never had to come, when you have forgotten that, I say, and how you swore if somebody beat the bell, and how my heart played hopscotch if the telephone rang, and how we finally went in to Sunday dinner. That is to say, went across the front room floor to the ink-spotted table in the southwest corner to Sunday dinner, which was always chicken and noodles or chicken and rice and salad and rye bread and tea and chocolate chip cookies. I say, when you have forgotten that, when you have forgotten my little presentiment that the war would be over before they got to you and how we finally undressed and whipped out the light and flowed into bed and lay loose-limbed for a moment in the weekend, bright bedclothes, then gently folded into each other when you have, I say, forgotten all that, then you may tell that I may believe you have forgotten me.
Well, I like to read that to young audiences. I like to read that to young audiences and watch them whispering to each other and nudging each other because I know what they're saying. They're saying, listen to that old woman talking about love. What does she know about love? However, as some of you may have heard, I know something about that entity. And uh, last September 17th, my husband and I went to the Ritz-Carlton Hotel in Chicago a hotel we never could have entered back in 39. And there we observed, let's put it that way, instead of celebrated, observed our 50th wedding anniversary. Thank you. I want to read you a poem called Gottschalk and the Grand Tarantella. Gottschalk was Louis Moreau Gottschalk, who was born in 1829 in New Orleans. And he was a very famous pianist and composer. Gottschalk liked to sneak up when he was young, sneak up in the shadows behind the slaves. And he loved to watch them dancing and listen to them singing. Some of their dancing reminded him of tarantulas, hence that very famous piece, The Grand Tarantella. In this poem, I'm addressing the slaves. My black brothers and sisters, nimble slaves in New Orleans, dancing to your own music, loving your wild art, your art vertical, winnowing, willful. You did not know that Gottschalk was watching, was hearing. Slouched in the offing, he was. Crouching most shamefully, he was. Stealthy, heavily breathing. He fell in love with your music. Died at 40, but before that he created Libanjo, an American sketch. He created piano pieces based on slave dances. He created piano pieces based on tunes he heard in the Congo. Early he stole the wealth of your art. Wrongfully he bore it away to the white side of town. You never knowing, and there he doctored the dear purity. He whitened your art and named it his own. He traded it for money in great halls of whiteness. He sold it to thronging white company. The patrons went mad, loving odd music, embroidered savagery. Women wept and wilted. They cut off and wore his hair. He became the lapel piece composer. His concerts and conquests multiplied. He handled many a money. 
and he died at 40, an over-music man. He rose across you, black beauties. He stole your art. He never passed you a penny, nor painted your name on a page. But her, he inherited slaves from his father and freed them. All hail the debt payer. I want to read you a poem. Thank you. I want to read you a poem, We Real Cool, which most young people, thank you. Most young people who know my poetry know me by this poem. And uh, that doesn't mean I don't care for it. I would just hope that someday the anthologists and the textbook compilers will decide that other poems might be put in the place <laughs> of We Real Cool. I want to uh, dedicate this reading of this poem to people that I met, wonderful people at uh, WLIB. Uh, this noon. They are James Mitchell, Gary Bird, and especially Tevin Thomas, whom I'm, I suppose many of you know him, what a musician he is, and I'm still singing inside because of that music I heard down there. The pool players, seven at the golden shovel. We real cool, we left school, we lurk late, we strike straight, we sing. Sin we, then gin we, jazz June we, die soon. I want to give you a little background on that poem. I wrote it many, many years ago because it's in a book that came out in 1960 uh, because I saw seven youngsters shooting pool in a pool hall in my neighborhood. It's called Baylocks. If you go there now to 75th and Cottage Grove, you won't see Baylocks because it has unfortunately been turned into a laundromat. But on this occasion, it was uh, during school time that I saw these young people, and um, I wondered how they felt about themselves, and I decided that perhaps they did not feel truly cherished by their society. And um, were there thumbing their noses at said society by playing hooky from school. I'm happy to tell you that this uh, poem, very proud of this, has been put on a lot of buses all over the country. And I like to think of you sitting on a bus and looking up and seeing between an ad for x lax and an ad for Calvert Whiskey, we real cool. <laughs> Let's see, I want to offer you next two impersonations. Impersonations of Winnie Mandela and of Jane Addams. Um, these people I admire very much. And uh, I spent the summer before last impersonating Winnie Mandela. I wrote a book about her called Winnie. And, um, what a wonderful feeling it was to be Winnie for an entire summer because she is one of my heroes and has always been, even when they were saying naughty things about her, 
in the newspapers, which I didn't believe for one minute. The other poem I wrote because I was asked to write as Poet Laureate of Illinois, a poem celebrating the uh, creation of Hall House in Chicago, which was uh, one of Jane Addams' great contributions. But uh, let's start with Winnie and the opening poem has an interesting, I think, little surprise at the end. Winnie Mandela, she, the nonfiction statement, the flight into resolving fiction, vivid over the landscape, a sumptuous sun, for our warming ointment at the gap of our wounding, sometimes would like to be a little girl again, skipping down a country road, singing, or a young woman flirting, no cares beyond curl braids and paint, and affecting no change, no swerve, no jangle. But Winnie Mandela, she, the she of our vision, the code, the articulate rehearsal, the founding mother, shall direct our choir of makers and wide music. Think of plants and beautiful weeds in the wilderness. They can't do a thing about it, they are told, when trash is dumped at their roots. Have no doubt they're indignant and daunted. It is not what they wanted. Winnie Mandela, she is there to be vivid, there to assemble, to conduct the old magic, the frightened beauty the trapped wild loveliness, the crippled reach, interrupted order, the stalled clarity. Listen, my sisters, brothers, all ye that dance on the brink of blackness, never falling in. Your vision, your code, your winning is woman grown. I, Nelson, the Mandela, tell you so. Well, that was it that uh, Nelson was talking all the time. <laughs> and I'd like to make a couple of excerpts from the second part of the poem, which is called Song of Winnie, and uh, projects Winnie as uh, talking to black Americans. It's a kind of stream of consciousness thing, but the first part, first little excerpt I want to read you is about poetry, which maybe I should have read to begin my whole offering. Here, I have her thinking of herself as poet, and those of you who have seen documentaries uh, of her, different parts of her life, and perhaps saw that, uh, I thought, remarkable picture Mandela will agree with me, I believe, that she was and is essential poet. So I have her saying, yet I know that I am poet. I pass you my poem. A poem doesn't do everything for you. 
you are supposed to go on with your thinking. You are supposed to enrich the other person's poem with your extensions, your uniquely personal understandings, thus making the poem serve you. I pass you my poem to tell you we are all vulnerable. The midget, the mighty, the richest, the poor, men, women, children, and trees. I am vulnerable. Hector Peterson was vulnerable. My poem is life and not finished. It shall never be finished. My poem is life and can grow. Wherever life can grow, it will. It will sprout out and do the best it can. I give you what I have. You don't get all your questions answered in this world. How many answers shall be found in the developing world of my poem? I don't know. Nevertheless, I put my poem, which is my life, into your hands where it will do the best it can. I am not a tight-faced poet. I am tired of little tight-faced poets sitting down to shape perfect, unimportant pieces. Poems that cough lightly, catch back a sneeze. This is the time for big poems roaring up out of sleaze. Poems from ice, from vomit, and from tainted blood. This is the time for stiff or viscous poems, big and big. Well, now, of course, I wrote this poem before. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. I wrote this poem before Nelson was um, uh, released from prison. So I want to read you a little part that says Nelson is residential in my head because that was the only place that he was residential within reach at that time. I want to say, uh, before I read this little section, how many of you noticed when they were out there, and he had just been released from prison, and they were walking away from the prison. And um, they were hand in hand. She was on his left side. And uh, she was, she did this at one point, like that. You know, that's a familiar gesture of hers. And uh, his arm was down, his right arm was down at his side. But uh, she nudged him ever so faintly. Some of you noticed that. And then up went his arm. <laughs> now, it's a woman, I believe, that would chiefly notice and appreciate that. Because <laughs> how many times have we nudged our husbands? Well, Nelson is residential in my head. We were human together. We were frolicsome and merry. We rubbed noses. We giggled. We were clear bells together. You have a little trotty walk, he said. You are also grand, also a queen, he said. 
you are a quip and a quirk and a queen, he said. I was frisky, but became what he named me after, high-souled family shepherdess. He taught me how to love and to let go. He taught me how to taste a darling song and rise from little table satisfied. How to enfold good people and not take fright anticipating loss. Tutored by him, I do not grab addresses, telephone numbers. Tutored by him, I touch the temporal with fingers used to losing. Do you remember Nelson straight and free? He had an editor's eye for the malformed, for the indistinct. He circled our cliches. Before his people, he was eloquent. He was not fearful confronting his people. He knew an audience is a bunch of ones that he was not entreating a gang, a mob, a smear of faces, but was driving to and into each set of secret graces. Incidentally, that's the way I feel about you. I want to read you a poem called Thinking of Elizabeth Steinberg. I'm sure most of you read about this little girl of six who was brutally killed by her foster father, as people kept saying in the papers, a brilliant lawyer. I don't know why that point was made over and over again, a brilliant lawyer. Already, you're on page eight, and in a while, your name will not be remembered by that large animal, the public general. I don't know who will remember you, Lisa, or consider the big fists breaking your little bones, or consider the vague bureaucrats stumbling, fumbling through paper. Your given name is my middle name, Elizabeth. But that is not why I am sick when I think of you there. No one to help you in your private horror of monsters and fools. You are the world's little girl. And what is a little girl for? She is for putting a bow ribbon on. She is for paper dolls. She is for playmates and birthday parties. She is to love, to love. She is to be precious, precious. She is for ice cream cones. She is not to be hurt. She is not to be pounded. Elizabeth, Lisa, we cannot help you. They wept at the wake in Redden's funeral home among messages, bright gladiolas. There was weeping at your grave. Tardy tears will not return you to air. But if you are somewhere and sentient, be comforted, little spirit, because of your lean day, the vulgarity of your storm, 
the erosion and rot of your masters sitting in the sputum of their souls. Another Lisa will not die. You help us begin to hear. We begin to hear the scream out of the twisted mouth and out of the eye that strives to be normal. We shall listen, listen. We shall stomp into the horror houses, invade the caves of the monsters. In the name of Elizabeth Steinberg, in the name of Lisa. You know, this just happens to be the last day of... <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. This just happens to be the last day of Child Abuse Month. And I suppose that means that you can all put your concerns about child abuse on the top shelf where you put your, not all of you, but some of you put your concerns about um, black concerns, black awareness, and black salvation. When February came to an end on that top shelf, in a closet out of the way. You don't have to think about it till next year. <laughs> I think I'll read you now. Oh, I promised to read Jane Addams, which uh, is recent. She was born September 6, 1860, and died May 21, 1935. And you'll, a lot of you will be interested in this first line. I am Jane Addams. I am saying to the giant blessed time, to the young and yammering, to the old and corrected, well, chiefly to children coming home, with worried faces and questions about world survival, go ahead and live your life. You might be surprised. The world might continue. It was not easy for me in the days of the giants, and now they call me a giant because my capitals were labor, reform, welfare, Tenement regulation, juvenile court law, the first factory inspection, workmen's compensation, woman suffrage, pacifism, immigrant justice. And because black, brown, and white, and red, and yellow heavied my hand and heart. I shall tell you a thing about giants that you do not wish to know. Giants look in mirrors and see almost nothing at all. But they leave their houses nevertheless. They lurch out of doors to reach you, the other stretchers and strainers, erased under ermine or loud in tatters. Oh, moneyed or mashed, you 
matter. You matter, and giants must bother. I bothered. Whatever I was tells you. The world might continue. Go on with your preparations. Moving among the quick and the dead. Nourishing here, there. Pressing a hand among the ruins and among the seeds of restoration. So speaks a giant, James. Let me make a few of you mad here. I want to read you a poem called To Those of My Sisters Who Kept Their Naturals. And under that title is the legend, Never to Look a Hot Comb in the Teeth. Some of you remember that, that uh, interesting picture that came out long ago called Ten, and the star was uh, Bo Derrick. And Bo Derrick in that picture had her hair in cornrows. And about that time, little black girls sprouted forth in cornrowing. And you would hear some of them, more is the pity, saying, Look at my hair. This style was in that picture 10 with Bo Derrick. This is the way she had her hair uh, arranged, etc., etc. That was very infuriating because I hope everybody here knows that corn rowing is ours and it goes way back into our history. <laughs> Sisters, I love you. Because you love you. Because you are erect. Because you are also bent. In season, stern, kind, crisp, soft. In season. And you withhold. And you extend. And you step out and you go back and you extend again. Your eyes, loud, soft, with crying and with smiles, are older than a million years, and they are young. You reach in season, you subside in season, and all below the rich, rough, right time of your hair. You have not bought Blondine. You have not hailed the hot comb recently. You never worshipped Marilyn Monroe. You say, Farrah's hair is hers. You have not wanted to be white, nor have you testified to adoration of that state with the advertisement of imitation. Never successful because the hot comb is laughing too. But oh, the rough, rough other music, the real, the right, the natural respect of salt and seal. Sisters, your hair is celebration in the world. Don't throw any tomatoes at me, sisters. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. 
I think I'd like to read you the near Johannesburg boy. I wrote this poem because I was listening to the news one evening and the anchor was saying that little black children in South Africa are meeting each other in the road and saying to each other the equivalent of, have you been detained yet? How many times have you been detained? And I thought that was perfectly appalling. I'd like to think of those children over there able to talk about childish matters like ball playing or whatever it is that they like to do over there when they have the time to do it instead of wondering when they're going to be thrown into prison yet again. So I empathize with one of those kids. Um, this is a boy, perhaps. It is a boy, <laughs> near Johannesburg boy. Um, maybe 14, 15, 16 years old. And uh, I brought along this little piece as a preface to read from the poetry of Norman Jordan. And it, this was written in the late 60s or very early 70s. And if a man comes to kill me, let him meet us all. That was considered quite revolutionary in, uh, <laughs> when, uh, in uh, the late 60s and early 70s when the word revolution was used a lot. But I don't believe we ever had a revolution. I think that many of us had a healthy, healthy rebellion. Well, with that for a preface, I want to read you this poem about a boy who cannot live in Johannesburg. Perhaps he lives in Soweto, hence the title. My way is from woe to wonder. A black boy near Johannesburg, hot in the hot time. Those people do not like black among the callers. They do not like our calling our country ours. They say, our country is not ours. Those people visiting the world as I visit the world. Those people, their bleach is puckered and cruel. It is work to speak of my father, my father, his body was whole till they stopped it. They stopped it suddenly with a short shot. But before that, physically tall. And among us, he died every day, every moment. My father, first was the crumpling. No, first was the fist and the fury. Last was the crumpling. It is a little used ray that is under, it is not, it is not my father gone down about my mother. My mother was this loud laugher below the sunshine, below the starlight at festival. My mother is still this loud laugher, still moving straight in the getting it done as she names it. Oh, a strong eye is my mother, except when it seems we are lax in our looking, well enough of slow, enough of old story. Like a clean spear of fire, I am moving, I am not still, I am ready to be ready. I shall flail in the hot time. Tonight I walk.
with a hundred of playmates to where the hurt black of our skin is forbidden. There in the dark, that is our dark. There a pulse across earth, that is our earth. There they're exalting, they're exactly, they're redeeming, they're roaring up. Oh, my Father, we shall forge with the fist and the fury. We shall flail in the hot time. We shall, we shall. And there's no punctuation at the end because there's no punctuation to that situation. As yet. Thank you. I said, there is no punctuation to that situation as yet. I'm going to read you a poem called To the Young Who Want to Die. This poem is not good enough to deserve its subject, but it's the best that I could do at the time. I hope to address the subject in the future and I hope successfully. Nevertheless, I want to read it to you. Oh, uh, I jotted a note down here. Uh, there was a woman on uh, the Oprah Winfrey show this afternoon. Some of you may have uh, seen that. They were talking about um, uh, survivors of murdered children. Well, um, of course, my subject involves youngsters who think they want to die, who are killing themselves, and we know there are many, many, many of these. But uh, this woman said that if only somebody, she had lost her son, you see, if only someone would send her a survival manual, uh, she would certainly appreciate it because she could not get over the, the loss, the tragedy of the loss of her son. Uh, and I have one for survivors. I know there are many survivors here of, of one tragedy or another. And um, someone uh, was kind enough to give me this line from the poetry of John Chiardi. See, it isn't even my survival kit written by me. But John Chiardi said long ago, lovely this day, no matter who, has died. I like to pass that on. I know it sounds very bossy and cold. Lovely this day, no matter who has died. Just remember that it will be of use to you one of these days. This poem, too, is bossy. Because everywhere I go, whatever campus I visit, somebody there, and maybe more than one somebody, will tell me of someone there who has committed suicide or is about to commit suicide, threatening it, or the person talking to me may say that uh, he or she is planning to do away with himself or herself. This is appalling to the ears of somebody my age because by the time you're my age, you know that no matter how pesky life can be, it is still worth the living. Sit down, inhale, exhale. The gun will wait. The lake will wait. The tall gall in the small seductive vial will wait, will wait, 
We'll wait a week. We'll wait through April. You do not have to die this certain day. Death will abide, will pamper your postponement. I assure you, death will wait. Death has a lot of time. Death can attend to you tomorrow or next week. Death is just down the street. His most obliging neighbor can meet you any moment. You need not die today. Stay here through pout or pain or peskiness. Stay here. See what the news is going to be tomorrow. Graves grow no green that you can use. Remember, green's your color. You are spring. That's what most of the young people I see out here are. Spring. Where do you go on Monday nights? I think since this is uh, obviously an audience that really likes poetry, really is interested in poetry, I'll read to you a poem called The Lovers of the Poor. I wrote this poem because when I was awarded a Pulitzer back in 1950, the newspapers put my address uh, in their columns. They shouldn't have done that. And um, people came over to see me, all kinds of people. And in those days, that was back in, as I, I think I said, 1950, uh, I was opening the door. When anybody knocked on it, I opened it. In fact, in those times, often our doors could remain open, especially if it was, you know, a nice, warm, afternoon or evening, no more. But um, to my house came uh, two very wealthy women. And uh, some of you might even know the names if I mention them, which I will not do. <laughs> and uh, they came, knocked on the door, I let them in, and they asked me all kinds of interesting personal questions, which I answered being a nice girl. But um, while they were talking to me and asking me these questions, I was mentally bouncing them over to the uh, Mecca building. This was uh, on uh, between 33rd and 34th, I believe. If that's not right, it was between 34th and 35th. I think I put it in the poem, that address. And um, uh, this building I had worked in when I was 19, because when I got out of junior college, I had to get a job, and I went to uh, the Illinois State Employment Service, and I was given a job typing, as it turned out, for a spiritual advisor who had his offices in the uh, first floor of the Mecca building. The Mecca building was a huge building, some uh, four stories high, it was four stories high, and it occupied um, a, uh, the city block. It occupied that entire city block. It was torn down about 54. Well, this spiritual advisor, I just thought I was getting a nice typing job. 
the spiritual advisor had five secretaries, and he kept them all busy typing pages of lucky numbers, and uh, we would have to clip them out, and whenever anybody wrote and asked for a lucky number, we just put any number we had clipped out into an envelope and sent it off. And um, of course, a dollar had already been sent because the spiritual advisor uh, didn't, didn't send anything out unless he had money in hand. Well, I also had the job of going through the building and um, uh, passing out things that had been paid for. And they had some interesting names, which I put in this poem called um, In the Mecca. And uh, I want to read you just a few of those names. You'll uh, recognize some of them. Drawing and holding powder, attraction powder, black cat powder, powerful serum. Marvelous potency number 91, which stoppeth husbands and lovers from dastardy. Paycheck fluid, running around elixir, policy number compeller, voodoo potion. Well, uh, this poor um, spiritual advisor was later killed with his assistant in that very office, so it's a good thing that I left there when he... <laughs> When he told me that, um, well, I, it wasn't so much that I left there. He told me that, that I was um, henceforth to be his assistant pastor. He liked the way my letters sounded. And uh, if I didn't show up on Sunday, I needn't come back on Monday. And I thought he couldn't mean that. Came back on Monday and was fired, fortunately. Well... Uh, that is the uh, seasoning of this poem. The lovers of the poor arrive. The ladies from the Ladies' Betterment League arrive in the afternoon. The light light slanting in diluted gold bars across the boulevard brag of proud seamed faces with mercy and murder hinting here, there, interrupting all deep and debonair. The pink paint on the innocence of fear. Walk in a gingerly manner up the hall, cutting with knives served by their softest care, served by their love so barbarously fair, whose mothers taught you'd better not be cruel, you had better not throw stones upon the wrens. Herein they kiss and coddle and assault anew and dearly, in the innocence with which they baffle nature, who are full, sleek, tender-clad, fifty-ish, aglow, all sweetly abortive, hinting at fat fruit. Judge it high time that fifty-ish fingers felt beneath the lovelier planes of enterprise to resurrect, to moisten with milky chill, to be a random hitching post or plush, to be, for wet eyes, random and handy hem. Their guild is giving money to the poor, the worthy poor, the very, very worthy and beautiful poor, 
perhaps just not too swarthy, perhaps just not too dirty, nor too dim, nor passionate. In truth, what they could wish is something less than derelict or dull. Not staunch enough to stab, though, gaze for gaze. God shield them sharply from the beggar bold, the noxious, needy ones whose battles bald, nonetheless for being voiceless, hits one down. But it's also bad and entirely too much for them, the stench, the urine, cabbage, and dead beans, dead porridges of assorted dusty grains, the old smoke, heavy diapers, and their tall something called chitterlings, the darkness, drawn darkness, or dirty light, the soil that stirs, the soil that looks the soil of centuries. And for that matter, the general oldness, old wood, old marble, old tile, old, old, old. Not home kind oldness, not like florist, Gletko. Nothing is sturdy, nothing is majestic. There is no quiet drama, no rubbed glaze, no unkillable infirmity of such a tasteful turn as lately they have left. Glencoe, Lake Forest, and to which their cars must presently restore them when they're done with dullards and distortions of this mystic patience of the poor and put upon. They've never seen such a make doness as newspaper rugs before. In this, this flat, their hostess is gathering up the oozed, the rich rugs of the morning, tattered, bespattered, ready to spread clean rugs for afternoon. Here is a scene for you. The ladies look in horror behind a substantial citizeness whose trains clank out across her swollen heart, who arms akimbo almost fills a door. All tumbling children, quilts dragged to the floor and tortured thereover, potato peelings, soft-eyed kitten, hunched up, haggard to be hurt. Their league is allotting largesse to the lost. But to put their clean, their pretty money, to put their money collected from delicate rose fingers tipped with their hundred flawless rose nails. Seems they own Spode, Lowestoft, Candelabra, mantles and hostess gowns and sunburst clocks, turtle soup, Chippendale, red satin hangings, Aubusons and Hattie Carnegie. They winter in Palm Beach, cross the water in June, attend, when suitable, the nice art institute, buy the right books in the best bindings, saunter on Michigan Easter mornings in sun or wind. Oh, squalor, this sick four-story hulk, this fiber with fissures everywhere, why, what are bringings of load 
love largest. What shall peril hungers so old, old? What shall flatter the desolate? Tin can, blocked fire escape, and chitterling, and swaggering, seeking youth, and the puzzled wreckage of the middle passage, and urine, and stale shames, and again the porridges of the underslung, and children, 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 heavens, that was a rat. Surely, off there in the shadows, long and long-tailed, gray, the ladies from the Ladies' Betterment League agree it will be better to achieve the outer air that rights and steadies, to hie to a house that does not holler to ring bells else time, better presently to cater to no more possibilities to get away. Perhaps the money can be posted. Perhaps they too may choose another slum, some serious, sooty, half unhappy home, where loath love likelier may be invested, keeping their scented bodies in the center of the hall as they walk down the hysterical hall. They allow their lovely skirts to graze no wall, are off at what they manage of a canter, and resuming all the clues of what they were, try to avoid inhaling the laden air. I'm gonna close with a short poem. Thank you very much. Are you clapping because I said I'm going to close? <laughs> I know it's hard to listen to a long program of poetry. It's even harder to listen to a long program of fiction I have found. I want to close with a little poem called Infirm. And I wrote this because um, when I was consultant at the library, which was a wonderful job, I really enjoyed that. Got to spread poetry all around Washington, Virginia, and uh, Maryland, and other places. Um, somebody called in to ask that I find poems in the library that uh, spoke to the traumas and trials of the handicapped. I didn't know at that time that the handicapped don't want to be called um, um, handicapped. They want to be called the disabled. And I don't care for that either. So I came up with something I do like, and that is the inconvenienced. What do you think about that? The inconvenienced. <laughs> so I decided I would try to write such a poem. And um, I've always felt that all of us are handicapped in disabled, inconvenienced. That's true of everybody here, and you're all New Yorkers. And so sophisticated and self-possessed and often beautifully dressed. But uh, each and every one of you, I'm sure, knows that some little something is not right. 
However, this is a very happy and positive poem, and that's why I like to end the program with it. Everybody here is infirm. Everybody here is infirm. Mend me. Mend me, Lord. Today I say to them, say to them, say to them, Lord, look, I am beautiful. Beautiful with my wing that is wounded, my eye that is bonded, or my ear not funded, or my walk all a wobble, I'm enough to be beautiful. You are beautiful too. That's so you'll all go out of here saying, I'm going to tell you this. I want to thank you, Gwendolyn Brooks, for your gift of an unforgettable evening. And, uh, and I would like to remind those of you who are planning to uh, attend the celebration for Sterling Brown tomorrow evening, in which uh, Ms. Brooks will participate, uh, along with Samuel Allen and Sonia Sanchez and uh, William Meredith and Josephine Jacobson and Michael Harper, uh, that the place and time have been changed. This will take place at the Guggenheim Museum at 7 p.m. Thank you. <laughs>